Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast of Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. The Flammy's on with me all day today talking about the problem of evil, how it's a logical problem, an evidential problem, and also a, a problem with the hiddenness of God. We walk through a lot of stuff and end with, this is fantastic, the theses on Elihu, Elihu, from Job, on divine suffering and divine justice. You're going to love it today. Let me know what you think. Thanks for downloading the podcast. God's peace be with you. All right, welcome to Cross Defense. Hey, it's that time of week when we do some cross defensing. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. And joined the whole program. We got the flammy on all day today because I said, hey, send me a couple of notes on this. And he sends me about five hours worth of stuff. So last week we couldn't cram it into 40 minutes. So same thing this week. We're going we're gonna to talk about some common objections to the Christian faith, and today's topic is going to be the problem of evil in the world, and how do we face it? How do we think about it as Christians? How do we engage uh, in it uh, both what, both as an argument as well as existentially as we think about uh, the, the trouble that we have in our own lives and the troubles in the lives that we have, uh, the lives of the people around us as well. So that's what we're going to talk about. So here we go. Have Pastor Flamey, how are you? Hey, I'm pretty good. How are you? Great. I am great. It's um, you know, it's uh, hundred. It's I think it just got under a hundred today. So finally, it's starting to cool off down here. That's how I feel about it. So. Wow, that that's hot. That's hotter than we are. Amazingly, uh, <laughs> it's probably ninety out outside right now. So that's pretty balmy for us. You say you can split the problem of evil up in three different ways, the logical problem, the evidential problem, and then the problem of God's hiddenness. What, what do you mean by those three different ways of looking at the problem? Well, the logical problem uh, basically says when you compare various statements or propositions about God uh, against the proposition that evil exists, that there's a breakdown in the logic. Something doesn't fit together. Something doesn't mesh. So that's the logical problem of, of evil. The evidential problem of evil is probably uh, what you most hear from your friends or from your neighbors uh, who don't love God, who don't fear him, and they feel justified in not believing in God because they see a prevalence of evil all over the world. And all of this evil that they witness and that they experience adds up to a kind of cumulative case against the likelihood of God existing. And so the argument goes something like this. Like this uh, given that there is so much evil in the world and that God is supposed to be powerful and loving, then it seems like uh, that God must not exist. Otherwise, he would do something about all of the evil that we witness and experience in the world. <laughs> and then finally, uh, uh, there's this uh, question of God's hiddenness. And that is that, that if there is a kind, loving, and powerful God, shouldn't he in some way reveal himself uh, uh, to folks who otherwise say that they are justified in their unbelief? Because God has not, in fact, revealed himself. They don't hear a still, small voice in the, in the recesses of their heart. They don't experience in some way his presence. And uh, given the other problems with the uh, the lack of direct evidence for God, uh, uh, they, feel, uh, they feel like they're justified in not believing in him because he's silent. He hasn't given uh, his creatures any indication 
of his existence. These things related. These these th three things seem related to one another. Like you you could yes, presumably move from one to the other to the other. Yeah, yeah. So they they are all related. They're v different variations on what you were calling the problem of evil. Uh, that is that when we look at creation, we don't see a perfect world, but we see a very imperfect world. And it seems as if the theists, people like you and me who, who confess that there is uh, uh, a one God uh, who has made all things, who preserves all things, that he is loving, he is kind and merciful, and he is powerful, and he knows everything. We ought to be able to answer the, this problem of evil in some way. Uh, or people, when they see all the evil out there and they compare it against what the Christians say about God, they, they feel justified in saying, well, it doesn't seem like your Christian's God is even out there because of these terrible things that are happening in my life and in the lives of other people. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so what, so what, what do you... Now, you and I were talking about this last week, and, and you were asking me, what do I think is the one that I encounter most with people? And I thought, or the way I put it forth was what you said, the logical problem, and you were surprised about that because you think that most people... What as they, as we engage in this in sort of everyday life, uh, it's most of the time we engage with the evidential problem. Is that did I get you right on that? Well, when people uh, read their their uh, favorite atheistic Bible uh, author, I'm sorry, their their favorite uh, new atheistic, you know, like uh, uh, you know who the who Sam who Harris and are. Chris yes, Hitchens and all these guys, yeah, right, right. So when they articulate the problem of evil, they often do it in, in this evidential sort of a way. Uh, and, uh, but nevertheless, I think that the evidential way is, is how people try to express it intellectually. But probably, uh, this is what's nice about this hiddenness of God and separating it off into its own argument. Uh, it speaks to the, the reality that people just feel like God isn't there for them, that mm -hmm. God isn't speaking. He's not present with them. And if only they had a little bit of assurance of his presence and, and providence in their life, especially as they're suffering, then maybe things might be different. But because they feel this kind of abandonment, then I think that that's actually what pushes them into this, these evidential-style arguments where they say, well, there's so much evil that it cannot possibly be true that God exists. Wow. At least that's what I think. Yeah, so, so it goes from this... Um... It's it's a matter of it seems to me whenever I'm dealing with these atheists I've been in a couple of these debates where you know I went and got my clock cleaned by the various different atheists you got to laugh at that um, but it seems like to me the problem is they always what they always it's God does not meet their expectations and therefore he must not exist so they have this this sort of expectation of if there was a God this is how God should act, and because they don't see those particular outcomes, therefore there must not be a God, never mind questioning their own expectations of the God that they that doesn't exist. Yeah, you, you just put your finger on one of the, I think, the key objections to the hiddenness of God argument, and that is, well, what by what standard uh, do you think God should reveal himself? Because I think, and I'm sure you think as well, that God, in fact, uh, has answered the question of his hiddenness in a very profound and, in fact, a faith-causing way. But because it doesn't match up to whatever vague or arbitrary standards the opponents have 
uh, accumulated for themselves, then in fact, nothing will be able to satisfactorily answer their objection that, well, still, this isn't God enough for me. You know, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like uh, uh, to, to go down this thought ex- experiment road just for a moment. It's kind of like the, this thought. Well, suppose that, that uh, you say to God, God, I want you to speak to me. Give me something, right? And just like in the cartoon, God hands down the Holy Scriptures from heaven. God speaks to you through his word. We say, well, that's not enough. I, I need to see a miracle, right? And then, you, and then you witness a miracle, but then you start positing all these naturalistic explanations for why these things happened at that time. And, uh, and perhaps it, it, not only that, but it was just mere coincidence that everything seemed to line up in exactly the right way, right? Well, suppose that you see some sort of visible manifestation in front of you. And then you could say something like, well, you know what? I had so longed for a a visible manifestation of God that now I've just supplied one through my imagination. It was some kind of hallucination. So you could push that back so far that the standard by which God should reveal himself to justify belief in him uh, becomes untenable. I mean, it becomes, uh, uh, I suppose, a goalpost that keeps getting moved back to the point you never get there. Hmm. This is, um, it, it, I think it's interesting just as a, I don't know, maybe as a strategy point or maybe just to observe it is that most of the logical arguments that we face, oh, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of the times the large logical arguments that we face against the Christian faith are, are backfilling to justify people's conclusions or their own experiences. So that you, you first have this, the problem of God's hiddenness, which then sort of it backfills with the evidentialist argument which then sort of fleshes itself out into the logical argument but it started with this experience of disappointment in with disappointment in god i suppose well i this is the theologian coming out uh, by the way i i don't know if you should make this disclaimer but i certainly should i'm not a philosopher uh I, I did the uh, equivalent of staying at a Hollywood or uh, what do you call it a Holiday Inn Express last night. I read a handful of articles that I found on the internet, and that's why I feel like I could say a few things about these things. So, if any of your listeners want to want to uh, uh, you know get me on any particular nuance and trying to explain these various arguments, feel free. I mean, I, I I I'm certainly not an expert when it comes to the philosophy of religion. Uh, but speaking as a theologian, to your original point. Uh, I, I, I think that some of the most militant so-called atheists that you run into have some kind of background, especially here in the United States, with the Christian religion. And there, something happened in their past, which is actually the thing that pushes them to say there is no God, that is not, in fact, a lack of evidence for his existence. Perhaps it was the severity with which their parents brought them up in teaching them uh, uh, God as revealed by Moses and the law, and instead of teaching their kids about Jesus and grace and, and God's love and kindness and mercy, and exemplifying that in their own lives. Or perhaps it has something to do with the trustworthiness of their parents, that their parents had, had said over and over and over again, right, there is a God, we really want you to believe this, because this is important not just for your life here and now, but also for your eternal life. But then the the trustworthiness of their parents is somehow violated through various lies or sins that they commit. So one of the the most common uh, attacks against Christians and the Christian church here in this country is that we are a bunch of hypocrites. And and so this is interesting because I think it's a, the true argument is probably a moral argument that with the Christians, what you see that, that is actually an offense is 
is a, a lack of conformity to their own standards of righteousness. And it, it's almost as if the accusation is there that, well, if God is who he is, and he speaks and reveals himself to these Christians, shouldn't he supply the, the power or wherewithal to these folks who are trying to follow him to become righteous and pure to ju- so that they could be you know, that shining light on top of the hill for the rest of the world? And so when we see sins committed by Christians, this moral argument against uh, the Christian faith is probably the genesis, I think, of more intellectual uh, uh, assaults against the, the existence of God in general. Uh, that ultimately people are, 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 are scandalized by sin, maybe even their own sins, to the point where even to escape the accusations of their own conscience against their own sins, they seek out more intellectual arguments to say, well, I have reason for, for running away from, from uh, the fear of God. There's something there, I, and I want to press this, maybe in a future interview, but because there's this because because the moral argument, I I think one of the one of the things that we want to reflect on is the the fact that you cannot have an objective moral standard apart from the existence of God. So so the moral argument only works when you're borrowing Christian morality. Which is why the argument is always hypocrisy. It's not, it, it's not you don't live up to the standard of good, but rather you don't live up to your own standard. But even that, it's you always want to say, well, why is that bad? I mean, what in your worldview mm-hmm. makes not living up to your own standard bad? And it doesn't seem like there's any way to get there, ap- apart from at least the existence of God or the, the existence of a, a, a of a. Mm, of a creator or or an orderer of the universe. Now this is great. You've stumbled on something that's that's uh, that we need to talk about today. And that is when you start asserting the problem of evil over and against God's existence. What are you asserting? That there is moral inconsistency in the world. You are asserting a standard of judgment and uh, a standard of righteousness. And that well, the ironic thing is it's. It's not uh, God's judgment or righteousness or standard of morality that, that you have to abide by. Now it becomes the standard of morality that you know for certain that, you are, that you're put, placing God underneath, you see. You say, well, God, if you are good, prove it to me because I see these instances in this creation of not good and not righteousness and imperfection. And because of that, you need to justify yourself to me. And that's what we call engaging in the theodicy, or, or justifying God to our own satisfaction. So, so define that real quick. So theodicy is a Greek word. Um, theos is God. Dicey is dicey. What, what, what's going on there? And, and this is really interesting. Where you said that Christians don't engage in theology in this little note, which I think is really, and we got two minutes to do it. So you gotta, you got to give, give it to us quick here. Okay, so two things. Uh, First of all, a theodicy is different from a defense against uh, some of these logical arguments against God's existence because of the existence of evil. So when uh, Christian philosophers or other theistic philosophers answer the logical problem of evil or the evidential problem of evil, they're not necessarily providing a theodicy. Instead, they're providing a defense against what their belief is, that a God who is like the God revealed in the Holy Scriptures does in fact exist. Now, a theodicy is a little bit different. It gives a full-bodied explanation of why there is evil in the world. It comes up with a, comes up with a kind of a story 
for why evil is in this world. It, uh, it hypothesizes as to why God would allow evil into this world. And, and what it does is it goes beyond the evidence, I would say, of the Holy Scriptures uh, to supply information to our satisfaction that might justify God in our own sight, that would justify God to our own standards of ethics and morality, especially given that we think that, that God being powerful and merciful as he says he is, ought to be able to prevent all of the evil that we see in the world. And so trying to give that full-bodied explanation is what we call the theodicy. It's, it's uh, 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 trying to justify God according to our standard. And we want to avoid that because that would undo the, the, that would undo the hiddenness of God, which is the ability, well, I shouldn't say ability, but is, that is that God can be God and decide how he wants to reveal himself to us. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and you're listening to Cross Defense. Pastor Brian Flammy's on the line, and we're talking about the problem of evil. We've, we're just getting rolling. We're going to go to break right now, but we'll come back. It's a short break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to explore a little bit more the accusation that there's a moral inconsistency in the world, and on what basis that accusation can be made from the unbeliever, and press into it a little bit, press into some uh, explanations of the problem of evil, and uh, and think about the different ways that it comes to us and to our friends as well. So stay tuned. You listen to Cross Defense, and we'll be right back. I'm free to be faithful moderator Kip Allen. There's a saying freedom isn't free. Those of us who practice our religious freedom are learning the truth of that saying. A Christian athlete supporting Bring Your Bible to School Day is being called a bigot. Focus on the family's Bruce House Connect, and I address this issue on Free to Be Faithful, 2.30 Wednesday, and I get a 9.30 Saturday on Worldwide KFUO. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for me. Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Orazio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere.
All right, welcome back. Uh, hey, I told you that it was going to be a short break. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. And I got Pastor Brian Flammy, a pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. And we're talking about the problem of evil. We talked about how this comes in three ways. Probably it comes to us in three different ways. The hiddenness of God, the, the fact that God disappoints our expectations on how things should be, that it doesn't feel like God is there, which leads to an evidential argument, the kind of piling up of all all of the troubles that manifest in this life, which then kind of filters its way down into the logical problem, which is assertions that cannot be matched with one another. And so we're kind of talking through this stuff. You said, Pastor Flammy, that I stumbled on this idea that, and 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 I, and I want to kind of press this a little bit, the idea that the basic argument of the problem of evil comes down to the idea that there is a moral inconsistency to the way the world is and to the existence of God. And you said that one of the critical questions that we ought to bring to that argument is, by whose standards? In other words, if there is no God, how do you develop the standard of a moral inconsistency? Did I get it right? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a very important question. Um, the fact that there's a standard, an ethical or moral standard to begin with, is the remarkable thing. Uh, that that man would think of himself in possession of this standard, of capable of even reaching this moral or ethical standard, and then th th that man would presume to put the Creator under that benchmark as well to see what would happen. And does he himself live up to the standard uh, uh, if he apparently exists? Um, and there are all kinds of ethical theories about uh, that abound out there as to uh, what is the origin of ethics. <laughs> so you have consequentialists, you know, the, the utilitarianism out there that, that says that, uh, uh, well, actions are ethical or good if they cause uh, uh, more pleasure than they do pain, or they generate more utility for society as a whole uh, than uh, detriment it, you know. Uh, uh, you have other people like the deontologists who uh, assert the various kinds of uh, duties that are universally binding on all people everywhere. And so you remember Kant and his categorical imperative? Well, yeah. that would be a, an example of that. Uh, and then, of course, you just have uh, those folks who recognize a difference, an instinctual difference between virtue and vice. And uh, so Aristotle, of course, was not any sort of a Christian, at least uh, as we, we as Lutherans don't think so. <laughs> and Aristotle, yeah, was able to articulate from his pagan heathen background this real distinction that exists within the souls of men uh, to become great by uh, uh, becoming courageous and brave and good and uh, just versus, you know, craven and cowardly and, uh, and uh, you know, greedy and unjust. And, and so, they, it, it, so that focuses more on just the actions themselves and the, the basic recognition of a difference between good people and bad people. Uh, but still, I suppose, even with the virtue ethicist, it begs the question, well, why the standard? Uh, uh, for them, they would probably point at something in creation and say, well, you can see that there are better examples of a creature than others, right? There's a more healthy horse, right? Or that this is a better example of a, of a pig. <laughs> it's healthy. It's not sick. In the same way, you could probably look at the, the souls of men and compare them and say, this man uh, is capable of so much more, and not just capable of so much more. He's just an obvious example of of, uh, of ethical perfection than this other man who's who's smaller by comparison, not size-wise, but you know he's he is uh, loathsome and nobody wants to be around him because he's deficient. Well, 
Okay, so whatever standard you choose, nevertheless, uh, the person who says that there is evil in the world has already asserted that there is a standard. And he's probably, not intentionally, but at least tacitly, he's put the question out there, where, why the standard? Where does it come from? Uh, who has set this standard into place? Is it just something that we've agreed to as human beings? Uh, uh, certainly there's evolutionary theorists out there who say it's something that's, that's evolved within us that has become necessary for survival or something, right? They still have to answer the question as to why is there an ethical standard at all? And I think that gets to uh, uh, part of your point, which is, look, if there is a morality, it implies a kind of universal law, which implies a, a, perhaps a lawgiver. And so by asserting the standard upon God himself, you're at least acknowledging, maybe way back in the background, maybe not even consciously, but in some way you're saying that they're acknowledging that God, in fact, exists. Otherwise, such a standard would not exist. And you'd have to develop that argument all on its own. The fact that you're using logic and morality to argue against the existence of God, in fact, is unproving your point. Because both logic and morality cannot exist apart from God, a creator. This is the... So the very argument itself is undoing. I mean, when you try to use a syllogism, it's it's like trying to use a syllogism to 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 argue that there's no such thing as logic. Well, you you know the the argument itself is undoing it, is undoing the point. Well, now okay, now yeah. you, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's right. I mean, what you could show the the opponent is that hey, look, by bringing to bear a standard of right and wrong you're already uh, asserting those things that could only be possible if there is a God. Uh, and, and that's definitely a way in which you could engage uh, uh, the person who doubts God's existence by showing them that they live in a world that is such that without the conditions as they are, without their awareness of ethics as they have it, uh, 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 that, they could, that they could not even assert God doesn't exist, but they couldn't have those standards. They couldn't have this situation to be able to argue about it, or you could talk about it, unless, in fact, there is a God. Uh, I don't know. I've never tried to actually use these sorts of presuppositional arguments. <laughs> I, I, I'm always afraid of sounding like a jerk. It's like, well, you, you're trying to argue, but you're not actually arguing. It's like, if you want to make your opponent mad at the very beginning, this is perhaps a way to slap him in the face to say, you think you're articulating something coherent, but in fact, you're not. I don't know. I, I've not tried it. Perhaps other presuppositionalists have had much greater success than I imagine myself having. Uh, but anyway, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, maybe I'll get you set up on one of these atheist debates that always are walloping me, <laughs> and you can give it a try. Because uh, because maybe after the debate goes on for a little bit and the guy shows himself to be kind of sufficiently jerky to you, then you can then you won't feel so bad about bringing out the big guns and. and <laughs> And lower, lay, laying the boom on the guy. Now you talk, you talk yeah. about two different theodicies. I'm especially interested in, but the, you said the, this the Augustinian explanation. This would not be a theodicy, though. This would be the, the Augustinian explanation would be Augustine's uh, his answer for the for the problem of evil. Well, right, and and, and this is a, something important to to articulate. We are Christians. I mean, we believe that the Holy Scriptures are true, and that the Holy Scriptures give us the true history of what had happened in the world that allowed evil to exist here. And so what St. Augustine does is he doesn't do anything new. Instead, he examines the Holy Scriptures, and through various studies of the biblical word itself, he says this is the explanation as to why there is evil in the world. 
and he's engaging with a pagan audience, especially this book, uh, uh, The City of God. He's engaging with a pagan audience that's very angry with the Christians and that are blaming the Christians for bringing all this uh, barbaric uh, evil upon them, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the invasion of Rome by the vandals and all the rest of this stuff. Well, uh, St. Augustine is saying, look, Christians aren't your problem. Sin is your problem. And let me tell you where sin comes from. And so he, he expands upon uh, uh, the, the, the writings of the Holy Scriptures, the, uh, of the prophets and the evangelists, especially on the first chapters of Genesis. So, so modern philosophers will call this the Augustinian explanation. But really, we as Christians would say it's not Augustine's at all. But rather, Augustine is faithfully preaching the Holy Scriptures to a pagan, unbelieving audience, explaining why bad things happen in the world. So, for instance, I got an Augustine quote ready to go. Oh, so right. Like this. Wow. So St. Augustine says, in the city of God, uh, I think it's uh, book 13, chapter 15. He says, and thus, from the bad use of free will, there originated, uh, there originated the whole train of evil, which, with its concentration of miseries, conveys the human race from its depraved origin as from a corrupt root on to the destruction of the second death, which has no end. Those only being accepted who are freed by the grace of God. And so St. Augustine lays evil not at God's feet, but he lays it at man's feet, and especially at Adam's foot. And he says, look, Adam sinned. And when he sinned, he damned and condemned the entirety of his race, all of his descendants who would follow after him because of his uh, free act of, of not hearing God and believing him, but of turning his will towards things that are not of God, such as the promise from Satan. You can become like God if you disobey God and eat of the fruit of the tree. As soon as uh, uh, Adam's will was turned away from what God wills and has revealed through his word, then the sin is, co is committed. And then uh, uh, the consequences of that sin extend throughout all of time and history. Uh, and that is the origin of evil. Now, this is nothing other than just asserting what the Bible says. And uh, so to call it Augustinian, I suppose, is to call it biblical. Uh, now, there are all kinds of... Uh, before I move on to other things that we could say about this. Is there anything you want to put in here? Well, uh, yeah, a couple, I mean, a couple of the things I want to uh, kind of pick mm -hmm. up, because this is, the, I think, the standard apologetic response to this. Why is there evil in the world? And the answer is uh, free will. I think people put it too far. They'll say God had to create us free in order for us to love or something like that. Uh, they'll, they'll, yeah, so right. that they'll talk about the necessity of the free will. I'm not sure that that mm -hmm. is helpful. But I, but well, right. but well, it it, it uh, is good to say that it just goes back. God did create us at least at the beginning free, where we had a choice to to obey His voice or to not to disobey His voice. He gave that freedom to Adam and to Eve, apparently, and He wanted to do that, and He did, and from that came evil. Yeah, we should be very clear here when we say that uh, when Saint Augustine says free will, he's not talking about the infinite capacities of the American free will, that whatever it chooses, it can obtain for itself. That's kind of an idolatrous view of free will. And that's even an idolatrous view of free will when people in Christianity 
think that they are saved if and only if they make that free will choice for God and, and in that way self-elect themselves uh, into God's grace. St. Augustine means something else. When he talks about evil, what he's talking about is turning away from that, that thing that is good and part of creation towards that thing that is not creation, that is not good, that is not of God, that in fact leads to oblivion and death and destruction and hell. Uh, and so what, what, the right way to talk about this is that Adam, in the beginning, with his wife Eve, of course, uh, that they exercised their freedom as, as human beings in loving God as God desired, in hearing his word and rejoicing in, in his word, of rejoicing in the gifts of creation. They exercised their freedom in all of these things. Now, the devil comes and he speaks a word that is not of God and not from God. And little does Adam and Eve know, because the devil is lying, uh, this is a word of bondage. It's a word of bondage. Yet, it, the, the, Satan it takes this lie and makes it look beautiful by saying, you see all these beautiful things in creation that God has given you. Well, what if I could give you an even greater good, that you could be greater than who you are as a creature and become like God himself? And so, because Adam and Eve... Uh, understood what the devil was promising, and they thought it was desirable to become like God, they ate of the fruit, disobeyed God, and in that moment, their freedom ends, and they become bound in sin. And not only do they become bound in sin, but all of creation, the whole earth is cursed because of the sin, and all of their descendants after them are caught in the sin. That's where freedom ends. So God creates, uh, and his creation is free, and it's, and it's free to, to enjoy the, the gifts that he has given. Uh, and, uh, but nevertheless, I think that every Christian theologian, whether you are Lutheran, Calvinistic, Roman Catholic, uh, they all agree that Adam and Eve were mutable, or that their wills were, had the capacity for change. Now, what you were talking about before was Alvin Plantinga's uh, free will defense to the logical problem of evil. Oh, wow. And... Uh, yeah, so what yeah, I mean, Plantinga, of course, yes, I, that's what I was referencing. Yes, of, of course. course. <laughs> All right. So Alvin Plantinga has this pretty uh, robust defense um, against the logical problem by saying that God had to make us with free will because that we cannot imagine a better world where, uh, without it. Uh, that this, if God is going to make the best world, he has to make it with creatures that are capable of moral choice of choosing between good and evil, and so on and so forth. I don't exactly like Alvin Plantigo's answer either, uh, because in there, I, 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 it tastes Armenian. <laughs> it, it tastes wrong, I think. Uh, my theological insti uh, 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 instincts tell me to back off, take it easy. We, we're not sure we want to go down this road, especially since, especially since we know now that after Adam and Eve fell into sin, uh, that, that the whole of creation and the whole human race does not enjoy the same freedom that our first parents had, to enjoy God and to, and to bask in his presence. Instead, we are bound by our sin and our flesh to only do what is evil in God's sight. That is, until God calls us to be his own, by his grace and by his word, through baptism. I want to take a break now and then come back and look at the logical problem of evil with you, Pastor Flammy. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. That's Pastor Brian Flammy from Emanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, talking uh, today about the problem of evil. We'll be right back. Stay tuned.
Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. Boom, all right. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Pastor Brian Flammy is with me, and we're talking about the problem of evil. Okay, Pastor Flammy, you set up the, the, the logical problem of evil a little bit different than I do. You have four assertions. God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, God is omnibenevolent, and evil exists. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, so God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and he exists. I, I think, could you take out the omniscient? Because I've always just said that you got three things. God is all-powerful and all-good, and yet there's evil. Um, well, so you insert omniscient. He knows everything, because uh, I suppose you could uh, uh, try to create an, an idea of God that is not the Christian God and say, well, maybe he's good and he's powerful. He just doesn't know that evil's happening, right? Yeah. Which is, I suppose, a, a way that you could try to combat the argument. Look, okay. you take all four propositions uh, that God is good, uh, God is uh, knowing, and he is, and he is uh, uh, powerful, and that evil exists. And on the face of it, the atheist would say that this is logically inconsistent. As yeah. a set, you can't make it mesh and fit together. So something has to, to, ha- something has to give. Uh, either God is not powerful, uh, either God is, is uh, uh, not good, either he's not knowing. And because the theists, like us, the Christians, who, who trust what the scriptures say, won't give on any of those above three premises, Obviously, they would say, well, that can't possibly, that picture of God can't possibly uh, match up with the, the presence of evil in the world, because it, the God that you're describing would not allow it to, to be. So because there's evil, that means that God must not exist. How do you, uh, what do you, what's the best way into that conversation? So someone brings up this uh, as, a, as an argument for the non-existence of God. Where, what would you, how would you start to to kind of unravel it or take it apart? Well, I, I, I suppose what I would try to do is to get at, well, what are we talking about when we, when we mention evil? We, because the Christians don't deny that there is evil in the world. And in fact, Christians are at their best when we give the Bible's response to evil for our own souls and consciences, which is the balm of the gospel. And so to, to engage uh, that person in, in a conversation about the nature of evil uh, uh, in what ways have they seen it or experienced it, uh, uh, and, uh, and then to, to articulate what exactly evil is. Is it a force in the world? Does it possess a power all of its own? Or is it, in fact, and this is what the Christian could, could add to the conversation, or is it, in fact, a, a, a privation, a, a lessening of the good things that exist in creation? that it doesn't have a power of its own, but rather it represents that something is broken in this otherwise beautiful and, and intricately made world that has been set together for our, uh, uh, for our benefit and for our blessing. And so when the Christian starts talking to that person about evil in that way as being a kind of privation, of being a corruption of creation, then the Christian can, can start talking about sin. And the consequences of sin, not just in the abstract, out there in the world, but the consequences of sin, even within the, in an individual soul, right? 
And so it, in some ways, my, my, my idea is this, uh, to get people out of the argument <laughs> as soon as possible, to make it as personal as soon as possible. Uh, because is, is there a, 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 an answer to the logical argument? Uh, is there a defense that we could supply? Sure, but if they're playing intellectual hardball, it's probably, uh, it, 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 unless you go follow uh, Plantinga's free will defense, Eventually, the Christian, the Orthodox Christians, will hold up their hands and say, I can't go any further because the Holy Scriptures won't let me assert what God can or cannot do. Plantinga feels justified in doing that, claiming that God has to be rationally consistent and logical, that he cannot contradict himself. But the Lutheran will say, well, wait a second. I, I don't want to say what God can or cannot do. The Scriptures testify to God's goodness, right? The Scriptures testify to his mercy. The scriptures testify to, to uh, uh, his power, but the scriptures don't always explain why evil happens, especially particular instances of evil, be it natural evil, evil like an earthquake or a tsunami that destroys a lot of stuff or a part of a country, or, or uh, personal evil, evil that comes at the hands of another human being. The scriptures speak about sin entering into the world, and the, all of creation being cursed by sin. But beyond that, unless God gives a particular word to a prophet uh, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, then, then God is silent. And the Lutheran especially will say, well, we are going to respect God's hiddenness. And instead of trying to, to kick down the door of his hiddenness, to, to shake God by the shoulders, and to say, give me an answer as to why this evil, why right now? Uh, we are going to see how God desires to be known. And that is where, not where he is hidden, but where he reveals himself. And that is the word of the cross. That is the word of the gospel, which doesn't answer an intellectual problem. Instead, God says in the Holy Scriptures, don't ask the intellectual problem, because you're speaking about things you cannot understand. Isn't you are limited. I am God. You have to understand this. And because of that, you have to receive me where I reveal myself. And that is through the word. And that is through Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. It seems like for for the person who's really struggling with this, not for like the philosophy student who's just looking for more arguments against God's existence, but but for the person who's really struggling, feeling the pain of the problem of evil, and and wrestling mm -hmm. through this, one of the persistent illusions that becomes the energy behind the argument is the idea that an answer will bring comfort, so that if I yeah. could know why they're suffering. Then, for, then I could, I'd be able to handle it better. I'd be able to. I'd. It wouldn't be as much suffering. If and 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 this comes right down to the personal level too. We all, we always we always ask the question why when there's a tragedy. Why when there's a a man-made or or even a natural disaster. We say why and we ask the question why because we think that there's some comfort on the other side, uh, in the answer. But the problem is, and I think this is is pressing towards what you're getting to as well, that. The Lord knows that there's no comfort in knowing why. That's often why that question is left unanswered almost all the time. But the Lord has comfort for us in, in other ways, not in knowing why there's trouble or why there's evil, but, but, but most especially in knowing that Jesus has suffered also, that evil yes. has happened to God. Instead of, and so instead of answering the, the logical question, he gives us the promise of the gospel right and that is where especially as christians when we i think it's fine to engage philosophically with these things maybe we might even add a helpful word here and there uh 
But especially as Lutherans, we have to acknowledge our intellectual limitations. And we have to take to heart what happens when Job uh, uh, tries to stand in judgment over God, uh, demanding of God, why, why does it happen to me? I'm a righteous man, right? So presumably he doesn't know the conversation as it went down in heaven <laughs> uh, between God and the devil. And then I suppose your point is well taken. What if he did know? Would that give him any comfort? Uh, but instead, Job finds his ultimate comfort in, in what he sees at the end of the book, right? So he hears the word of God, he hears the preaching, and then he sees God, and then finally, that answers all the objections. Uh, I don't know, we could probably do a whole show on the, on the book of Job, uh, which would be, be kind of a nice follow-up, maybe, to this conversation. I, no, I, th- I think I'll, it would I'll let be. You decide what to do next. <laughs> you put you, so you put. I, I'm interested in this because you sent me an email that I'm, I, I haven't had a chance to look at, but it's really it's Elihu's seven theses on divine justice, and so we got oh, look. We got ten minutes. I think we can do this. This will be really. Let's try. Let's take a run at this and see how far we get at it. Because Elihu will run, want to remember is the fourth friend of Job. So the three friends come at first, and they're just miserable. Uh, but then uh, Eli- and Elihu's kind of hanging around. He doesn't say anything. And then Job finally, go- he steps over the line, and he asserts his own righteousness. And then Elihu s- steps in and says, wait a minute, Job. And then the Lord follows up on Elihu. And when the Lord, when he gives kind of his evaluation of the arguments, the three friends are in trouble, but Elihu is proven to be wise. So, so uh, But I've never seen this list. Did you make up this list? Yes. Oh man. Okay. So we. So let's get to it. So Elihu's seven theses on divine justice. This is going to be some gold here. So let's have it. All right. So uh, Job tries to assert his own righteousness over and against God, saying it is unjust what had happened to me, that God has committed some kind of act of injustice. This is kind of the conclusion that he came to. Now Elihu speaks words of judgment and rebuke against, as you said, Job's three friends and against Job himself, and. He asserts seven key things about God, that he knows about God, uh, to, to silence Job in speaking presumptuously, in setting himself as the judge over God. The first thing that he says is that God is not the cause of evil. You can find that in chapter 34, verse 10 of Job. It says, it says this, Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty, that he should do wrong. All right, so the first answer to theodicy that Job has tried to engage in is that you are wrong in even asking the question, because we know that God is not the cause of evil. He does not perpetrate and commit wickedness. Now, he lets that stand as an assertion. All these together stand as assertions that come together to give us the Christian picture of God. The second thing that Elihu asserts is that God deals not capriciously, but justly with men and all creation. Here, the, uh, that's in chapter 34, verse 11. And so it says, for according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. What, and so uh, Elihu asserts that God does not give capriciously, According to people's, uh, like, he won't pay good for, with evil, and n- nor will he pay evil with good. But in fact, God is dealing justly with creation. And if anything, this should make Job afraid, and it should make us afraid. 
Because if such destruction and wrath are being poured on creation, what does that mean? That creation, and perhaps, perhaps, even man himself is in the wrong. And it's not God who is the sinner, but man. The third assertion is, if God punished according to justice, all life would be ended. And I get that from the 14th and the 15th verses there. Uh, that all flesh would be destroyed if God entered into judgment with it. We see that same thought being uh, expressed often by the Psalms. Uh, and there's an implied conclusion, I think, that you could draw from the first three theses, and that's this, that all flesh has not been destroyed is, in fact, a testament, not of God's uh, capriciousness or his sin or his evil, but rather of his mercy. And the fourth assertion is this, God knows all of men's actions and pleas for mercy. So it's not as if God doesn't do anything or he does the wrong thing because he does it, he's just not capable of knowing. But Elihu wants Job to know, no, God knows exactly what he is doing because he knows exactly what's going on with creation. The fifth thesis is when God does not answer men's cries, it is in fact because of men's pride. And it's probably good to, to read this verse directly. And this is verse 12 of chapter 35. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Now, suppose I'm the person who's asserting this argument from the hiddenness of God, so that God has not revealed himself to my satisfaction, so I feel intellectually vindicated and not believing that God exists, or at least to be skeptical about his existence, right? Well, this, this plea to God to reveal himself is, in fact, the thing that causes God not to do so. Why? Because it asserts uh, uh, man's uh, uh, standard of judgment being put over God, and man using this standard of judgment in a way in which God never intended it to be used uh, as the tool and the means by which man's own sin is revealed, you see. Wowzers. Okay. Wait, so so sit, sit on that just for a second more. So so yeah. so run through it again. Run through that one. And what are, what thesis are you on, by the way? This is thesis five. Five. Okay. Number. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so uh, we're we talking about this. We're, we're talking about that when people engage in theodicy, right? And even when they try to come up with explanation, uh, their own theodicies, trying to justify God, trying to say, well, perhaps these are the reasons why God allows evil to exist. In the end, what they're trying to do is to put words into God's mouth. They're making him answer their own cries out to God for an, an explanation as to why there is evil and suffering in the world. Uh, it, not only does, does God remain silent to these things, but he, but he, in fact, judges these things. And that's why I think that engaging in theodicy is, is probably an act of spiritual peril. It, it, it reveals not any sort of humility on the part of man, not any just uh, innocent uh, intellectual curiosity on the part of man, but the scriptures reveal, I think, that it reveals man's pride, the central sin against the first commandment, that man, in fact, in asking the question of God, why is there evil, why don't you justify yourself to me, it reveals that he neither fears, loves, nor trusts in God above all things. And so what the Lord offers in that place, when, when we have this trouble, what the Lord comes back and offers is not an answer, but rather promises to believe, because that's, in fact, what God is after 
the whole time. I can't believe, Pastor Flame, we're out of time. We we only got the thesis five. I published these thesis, by the way, right on wolfmuller.co slash Elihu, or as you say, Elihu. And I think we're going well, to, let's, let's start here next week. So we'll start with the problem okay. of suffering and take this up uh, when, we, when we dig into it as well. It's an amazing thing to think that, that we are not dealing with these objections to the, to the Christian faith as philosophers. The Lord has not asked us to stand and argue his truth philosophically, although philosophy can be a tool. But he has asked us to be Christians. He's asked us to trust his word. And when we turn to the Lord's word, we find the Lord not open, well, sometimes giving answers, but mostly giving promises. And chiefly among them is the promise of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the Lord doesn't answer the problem of evil by, by, by living or, or according to our expectations and abolishing evil in every way. He does something astonishing. He enters into our suffering. He enters into this evil world. He suffers with us. And more importantly, he suffers for us so that he can claim us as his own and give us the promise of eternal life. That's the Lord's answer to the problem of evil, to endure it for us, for you. God be praised. Hey, you listen to Cross Defense. Talk to you next week. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks again for downloading Cross Defense. I hope you enjoyed your time with me and Pastor Flammy today. If there's someone who would benefit from listening to the show, I hope you'll share it with them and give feedback on whatever you listen to your podcasts on. When you rate the show and when you comment on it, it helps other people find out what's going on over here on Cross Defense. So thanks again for downloading, for listening, for engaging in the show. I posted up a blog, uh, wolfmuller.co slash Elihu, E-L-I-H-U, which has these seven theses written there. You can go and explore more uh, a theology there at the website, wolfmuller.co slash Elihu, to get the seven theses. Uh, thanks again for listening. Talk to you next week.